Welcome, everybody, to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12. We're introduced last week to Herod Agrippa, who was in a long line of family members who did violence in their political careers, especially toward believers. The persecution of Christians was one way that Herod, and again, it was Herod Agrippa I, I'll just refer to him as Herod, he sought to garner the favor of the Jews. Now, Herod killed James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, and he was imprisoned, imprisoning Peter as well. And we assume that this was done for the purpose of leading to Peter's execution. That's what they had hoped. So let's look at verses 1 through 11 of Acts 12. Let's all stand as we take a look at this passage. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Just this week, an American pastor was released from a Turkish prison to serve under house arrest. Andrew Brunson, a pastor from North Carolina, had been charged with espionage, and according to many other accounts, including himself. He vehemently denies this. American government has become involved, urgently uh, pleading with the Turkish government to release him, and now to the point of actually threatening sanctions against Turkey. Uh, members of Brunson's home church in Montreat, North Carolina, have been praying for his complete release. And just on a side note, uh, one of our missionaries that served with us for a long time and actually attended here served in Turkey, and three of his staff members were murdered, hogtied, had their throats slit by Islamic terrorists while he was serving in Turkey. So it's a very real deal. What's interesting is that Brunson has the backing of the U.S. government, and because of the world that we live in, it's as if all the eyes of the world are upon the situation. And his story kind of connects with Acts 
because we just finished Acts 11 and that situation that was in Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. But it also relates to the Apostle Peter, what he is facing with being in prison in Acts 12. The difference being, though, Peter does not have a country to plead his case. He's essentially on his own. He has no political clout. He only has a, a, a small band of believers praying for him. And what we're going to find out in this story is that that was no small thing. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, speaking of Herod, arrest Peter, and this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So when Herod kills James, apparently it delighted the Jews. So Herod proceeds to continue on the same track by imprisoning Peter. Now there was a fort built by Herod the Great, a relative of Herod Agrippa, and that fort was called Antonia Fortress. This was on the east side of Jerusalem near the outer wall, and it had jail cells in it, and most commentators think this is exactly where Peter was at, because once he exited, he went out into the city, and this was connected to the city. Now, when Luke says that the Jews were pleased, we take it to mean that it was not just the religious leaders. We read earlier in the book of Acts how the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees pretty much led the charge against the persecution. Apparently, this has now grown to the general populace as well, the persecution of believers. Herod seems bent on a kind of systematic mistreatment of Christians, especially the leaders of the church. And Herod would find it useful to execute Peter because he was a known leader of the church and he had fraternized with the Gentiles. The Jews were interested in both of those things because they wanted the Christian leaders to stop and they found it greatly disturbing that these people who were Jewish Christians would associate so closely with Gentiles that offended them. Now, we're going to need to delve in a little bit to the Mosaic Law to learn why Luke mentions some of these details about unleavened bread and the Passover. And if you'll hang with me a second, I think this will make sense, and you'll see how it connects to our story. Mosaic Law required all males in Israel to attend the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read in Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and also at the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Um, you might remember in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 43, we read of Joseph and Mary, the parents of Jesus, making a, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this purpose, to celebrate the feasts. So what Luke may be telling us in all of this, because what this would mean is that thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate these festivals, it would be a perfect time for Herod to grandstand. 
for the Jewish crowds. Now, why would Herod, though, wait until after the Passover for Peter to be on trial and to be executed? Well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the time in the Old Testament when God told the Hebrew people to exit Egypt and not to allow any of their bread to rise and just to grab everything they could and leave. This feast was to last seven days and to end with the Passover on the eighth day. That was a meal to take place. And many people actually refer to that whole period, those eight days, as Passover. Now, the oral law, or Torah, which basically is rabbinic teaching or interpretations of the written law, how it was to be applied, it forbid trying capital cases during the festivals. So it would have been after then the holy days had ended that Herod Agrippa, not wanting to risk his favor with the Jews, would have Peter come forth in this public trial and execution. I find this all just a tad odd because it, it seems odd to me that you have all of this religious festival and, you know, celebration, but behind the scenes, you have all this evil going on in the name of religion. That ought to stop us in our tracks. God is planning on doing something in spite of how the religious elite were operating. I think it also tells me that, that, that God wants us to not be so enamored with our own activity that we miss his movement, right? That, that you know, we might have all this stuff going on, but God's doing something over here. I mean, Christians are far too in love with themselves, many are, with their programs, with their, with their way of doing things that they don't notice God working elsewhere. In fact, they, they wouldn't notice if it hit them in the face because their arrogance keep them from noticing. The fact is, none of us have a corner on the God market, right? None of us can claim that the Spirit is moving in us, but He's not moving in those other Christians over there. I think we ought to make a practice of being generous toward other ministries instead of allowing our arrogance to kind of create a silo of our own importance. We're to have our eyes open that God moves beyond our own footprints. Herod appointed four squads to guard one apostle. A squad had four soldiers in it. So there were 16 guards, well-trained Roman soldiers for one man who had broken no law. Now, was Peter guilty of sedition? Was he guilty of murder? No. So what had he done to incense Herod? What had he done to make his death a necessity? He had preached the gospel. He had preached the gospel with zeal to Jews and Gentiles. I mean, this was an offense that could not be rectified except by Peter's blood. At least that's what they were thinking. Apparently, two guards were chained to Peter, one on each side. 
and two were standing watch outside, either right outside the jail or outside the main gate to the jail. Now, either Herod remembered how Peter had escaped in Acts 5. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but he escaped in a prior situation. Or maybe the Jewish leaders put him up to it, remembering how he had escaped before in Acts 5. Either way, Herod did everything humanly possible to keep Peter captive. And I highlight the phrase, humanly possible. Which is more powerful? Roman guards, a Roman army, or a group of Christians who are praying? Acts 12 answers that question. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter was bound, but prayer was loosed. And while Peter remained in prison, the Christians utilized the most effective means that they had to aid him, and that was praying for him. They prayed continually for him. This was not the garden variety of prayer that was tacked on after thanking God for our meal. This was a constant, without ceasing, eager prayer. There was an obvious urgency because of the circumstances surrounding Peter. I mean, the church was well aware of what had happened to James, right? I mean, they were asking God to to intervene on behalf of Peter that that Peter would not face the same fate as James did. Certainly they prayed for James. We talked about this last week. So they were learning that, that God was still operating, that God was still sovereign, even though those particular prayers weren't answered. But they also remember how God delivered Peter once before, and he could do it again. I mean, nothing is more encouraging than to know that people are praying, right? I mean, that's about as good as it gets. And often people ask me, you know, how can we pray for you or how can we pray for leaders? Well, consider the request of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 6.18, he tells us to pray for all the saints, and Paul asks others to pray that he would be bold in sharing the gospel. He asks in Romans 15, 33-33, that people pray for him as he goes to Jerusalem because he knows that there's going to be opposition and he wants to be delivered from the unbelievers that they would not get in the way of his faithful service to the church there. In Colossians 4, verses 2-4, through 4, he asks for steadfast prayer that God would open doors for the gospel, that he would speak with clarity. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, he wants prayer that the the word of God be accepted and spread and that he be delivered from the evil and wicked men who would stand in his way. And he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 11. What I want us to notice is that he's not asking for prayer so much for his comfort or even for his safety, but for the sake of the gospel, for the word of God to continue, that he would be on his mission, that he would be able to complete what God had called him to do. That was primarily on his heart. I mean, Christian leaders 
who are faithfully serving, they're going to get opposition, right? Now, being jailed for your faith might be common in other countries presently. It's just not common here in America. We certainly thank God for the freedoms that we have enjoyed, and I hope that we can enjoy that in the future. But opposition comes in other forms as well, does it not? There are people who, you know, no matter what the intention or what is in their heart, they spread ill will and lies. And Satan can, can use that to cause strife and discord and distrust. So the best defense that we have is to pray for our leaders and not tolerate that discord if that's done in your presence. Say, how can I help you? Pray for your leaders. Pray for these things that Paul just mentioned and don't be a party to the discord. Verse six. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, one has to ask, how did Luke know all of these details? I mean, unless you were there, how would you know that all of this took place? We have to assume that Luke actually talked to Peter and interviewed him with all that was going on here. Luke, by the way, was a medical doctor, was he not? And so details were very important to him. I mean, I don't want a doctor who doesn't know his details, right? <laughs> I don't know what this is, but why don't you just take this medicine? This might do you some good. You want a guy who knows what he's talking about, who's detailed. Now, all of this hints to something. It hints that these stories are true. It hints to the veracity of the stories. But also it testifies that in this specific case, the futility of man's attempts to restrain God's hand. I mean, are you in a situation where you're in a circumstance that just seems insurmountable? I mean, you don't know how you're going to get out of this. You cannot see a way out. The first thing is let's learn something from Peter in this. Somehow, someway, Peter learned how to rest even in tough circumstances. I mean, the time was close for Peter to stand trial. And he was going to face, from what all that we can ascertain, his execution. However, the night before all this was to go down, he's found sleeping like a baby between two guards, chained to both of them. The night before. Does this sound like a man who's afraid of persecution? Does this sound like a man who's afraid to die? I don't think so. He was sleeping so soundly that the angel had to poke him to wake him up. Enters the room, light all on. I mean, this guy was out. Who sleeps like that before an execution? I'd say one who's covered in prayer sleeps like that. That's who. The psalmist wrote this, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. I mean, there are some trials, are there not? Some situations where only God can help us. Some trials where only God can help us. I think perhaps part of the problem we might have in 
when we kind of hit a wall is that, and, and why some of our relationships are frayed, is that we are expecting people to come into our life and to do things for us that only God can do. It might be a, it might be a mate. It might be friends. And we've got this gaping hole in our heart. And God has waited for us to approach him to apply the balm of the Holy Spirit upon our heart to be near to his presence, to grab hold of his promises. And instead, we're sitting there reaching for all these other relationships, trying to find it. And when it doesn't work, we blame them. We then run to the conclusion, I guess people just don't love me. Nobody really cares. And all along, we're missing the point of being responsible. Now, I'm not saying that people can't think out on us. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. That certainly can. But the first thing we need to do is be responsible for our own heart to go before the Lord and let him deal with us. The time was close for Peter to stand trial. And God calmed his heart. He turns to God. Maybe these words from Isaiah will rattle around in his head. I don't know. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will uphold you. You know, maybe even Peter knew this isn't right. This isn't fair. And by the way, do you see the Christians picketing? How dare Rome and Jews do this to us? We have our rights. We don't see that. They're going to the Lord. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what he was doing. Uh, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard that came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. Notice an angel came to assist Peter, and this angel was visible. Now, the Bible also talks about uh, beings, angels, in an unseen world. So apparently there are times in which angels can manifest themselves. Now, you may think, well, you know what? I mean, I know that happened in the Old Testament, a lot of that stuff, and that's probably where most of that occurred, right? You know, angels are talked about more and mentioned more in the New Testament than in the Old. Angels can move and act with incredible power and speed. Now, I could give you examples and stories that I heard. They're just ancillary to the point that's already made here in our text, that there are angels that exist, and they minister to God's people. We hear in Hebrews 1, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit 
salvation. I have a good friend of mine that ministered in a church where the pastor had had an affair with the secretary for a long period of time, large church, author. Some of you might recognize if I said his name. His wife had her bags packed, ready to go, was upstairs with her suitcase, walking down the stairs. And as the story was told by her, she saw a man dressed in white at the bottom of the stairs and said, do not leave yet. Now that would put the fear of God in you. And she went back upstairs and put the suitcase down and stayed, at least for a time being. God cares enough about us that he has created special beings to minister to us, to help us, to help us fulfill our mission. There are probably times that it's happened to you and you don't even know it because they're also working in the unseen world. Do you really think that if there's real opposition to us with the gospel, to us moving with the word of God, to us as as a church, that anything can stand against that and have victory as we look to the Lord? I don't believe that for a second. Now, I think there are times in which we get scared, times in which we might fear, but you just sit and think about it. Can any of that opposition stand up to God? I mean, we can learn to trust him more when we're challenged, right? I was sharing with one of my sons recently of seeing God's hand protecting this church through the years. I mean, I've been, over, I've been here for over 30 years, so I've seen a little bit of history. There are, there are horror stories. I talk to my other pastor friends, and there, there are horror stories that are shared of people that, that create deep wounds, They leave scars and hurt, and you're thinking, why would you do that? And then they leave. But then I was sharing with my son, and I said, you know what? Actually, I think God has protected us. I think that, I think you you, you look at what's going on now, and you say, well, wait a minute. God has moved a lot of that those elements out at certain seasons or times. And I hear the same stories with with other churches. You also see God using those episodes for learning moments, right? I mean, we learn as we go through that what we can do with our hurt, what we can do with the hardships, what we can do with the trouble, and God brings growth and maturity. You learn of mistakes that you made and maybe things that you should have done better. God brings growth. He brings maturity through the hardships. So this angel stands next to Peter, the angel shining in the dark, pokes Peter, wakes him up, and he gives him special instructions. He says, get up, get dressed, let's go, follow me. Now Peter apparently is so groggy, he still thinks the angel is not in the physical reality, it's some kind of dream or vision. And then his chains fall off. you think that would wake him up. They, they walk past the guards at the gate, and they don't notice. We can only assume maybe the guards were asleep as well. I don't know. Then the iron gate between the fortress and entrance, 
entrance to the city opens as if it had a remote control, but no human hand had touched it. God just causes it to open. They step out into the street, and then the angel disappears. I want you to notice, by the way, Peter immediately sought assistance. And we're not in this part of the story yet, but he immediately goes where it's safe. He's not just walking around so arrogantly saying, nah, 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 you guys didn't get me. No, he's not doing that. He goes straight to a house of believers. I want want us to notice something. The commands that the angel gives Peter. They're all of a physical nature. Stand up, get your cloak on, put on your shoes, follow me. There is in the midst of the, the supernatural miracle, there is this responsibility of Peter to function in the natural world, to follow physical commands. I mean, Jesus, when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, what did he tell the disciples to do? To gather the leftovers. They, they had a job to do with, in, in the physical world. I mean, when the supernatural meets the natural world, we're not being asked to deny the physical world. Many worldviews believe this, that the physical world has no meaning at all. But there's something extremely practical and balanced about Christianity that juxtaposes these two worlds. In other words, we have responsibilities to fulfill in the natural, physical world. I mean, we still have to work. We still have to pay bills. We still have to buy insurance. We still have to, you know, mow the yard. But we are not limited to this world to think that God cannot intervene. God is not asking us to repudiate the physical to accept the supernatural. God alone can do the extraordinary, but his people have to continue to do the ordinary. And obedience in the ordinary and supernatural world, these intersect. Fulfilling our responsibilities in the physical world, we call this faithfulness, right? And what I don't want us to do is to see the things in the physical world as somehow insignificant, as somehow lower. How you work is a holy thing. How you handle your resources is a holy thing. How you function in your family is a holy responsibility and is an act of worship before God. There's another insight here. I think this is worth reading. I hesitated with sharing this only because, I think you'll understand why I hesitated, but this is from Wave Nunley. Wave is a professor at Evangel. He's a Pentecostal. I'm not. But Wave's commentary on Acts 12, I know Wave fairly well. It's the best commentary I've got on Acts. I've got between 50 and 75 commentaries on the book of Acts, and this is by far my favorite. He does a great job. He does a great job. I'm going to read this for you because I think what he has to say is a tremendous insight. I read it because it comes from his lips, not mine, but I think it applies to everyone, no matter what denomination you are a part of. But listen to what he says. 
He says, charismatic and Pentecostal readers should also note that this miracle of deliverance from captivity was not the result of Peter actively exercising his faith, standing on the promises, thinking positively, or making a positive confession. It must be remembered that Peter was asleep, right? Peter was confident in his covenant relationship with God and was convinced that God had all the power to do what was necessary to accomplish his will, end quote. That's a good word. That's a good word. I think when, when miracles don't happen in our life, it's not too uncommon to just automatically assume that we did something wrong, that we didn't have enough faith. But I think there is another aspect to this that we need to consider, that God is sovereign, that God does not answer every prayer of godly people. I still believe in prayer. I still believe that God can intervene, and sometimes he does it with our prayer, and sometimes he does it without. And sometimes he says no to our prayers, but that doesn't make God any less sovereign, and it doesn't mean that we have less of a responsibility to pray, because in my praying, I am moving closer to God. I am trying to learn his will, and I'm drawing near. We cannot box a sovereign God in with our own limitations. Verse 11 ends this section with, it's almost a comical note. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I mean, dude, the chains fell off, you got your clothes on, you walked through a prison, you're out on the street, and only now you're realizing that this was real. I mean, that guy must have really been out. After all this, he came to his senses and realizes God intervened. Now, his excuse was he was sleeping. I guess we can understand that or let him off. But for others, they might have a worldview that simply does not allow for a supernatural God at all or for the miraculous. All that they will believe in is a natural world, and that's very limiting. And then there are Christians who have these theological constructs that say, you know, God is not moving in our dispensation. God doesn't do that miracle stuff. And I think both cases are mistaken. And then there are those who believe that God always wants to intervene, always wants to do the miraculous on the other end, and if he's not, that means you have failed in your faith. And I think that view is wrong as well. There are a myriad of biblical examples, are there not? Just read through Hebrews 11, of people who were faithful to God and lost their lives. God chose not to intervene. I mean, how many people do we know who we have prayed for who've had cancer and they died from cancer? Are you going to automatically assume then that your prayers are useless? Are you going to automatically assume then you didn't say the right words, you didn't pray long enough, you didn't pray loud enough? To me, that's a a false guilt put upon believers. I don't believe that's of God. Our focus has to be upon a holy God, and then we leave the results to him. I like to stand with these three guys, the Hebrews, who were thrown in the furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. And we read in the book of Daniel. Of course, I mean, you're thrown in a furnace, 
You'd like to get delivered. (laughs) Who wouldn't pray that, right? But listen to this. And to me, this is the right attitude to have. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. No matter what befalls us, we're going to continue to serve God. No matter what befalls us, we're going to do exactly what the Word of God has told us to do, and that is not to worship idols. We're going to just serve God. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow down, but not to Jehovah God. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. Whether I live or whether I die, both of those are wins. If I live, I live in the strength of Christ. I live with his presence and his promises. And if I die, I die enjoying his presence 24-7. I mean, where is the, uh, where's the risk in that exactly, right? We win either way. The Christian who understands that then isn't going to fear so much the persecution or even death itself. Especially death, I mean, once you take away that ultimate, oh man, I just can't imagine dying for my faith. Well, listen, you're going to be in heaven. You're going to enjoy eternity. Mother Teresa said, these 70 years on earth is going to seem like a one night in an inconvenient hotel compared to eternity. So it's a win either way. Let's pray.